This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. I just thought of this. I need to come up with a new name for the show because the 25 doesn't work because we're not really voting for anything on this. So that's not going to work. I'm not going to come up with it right now. I'm just going to have to think about this. <laughs> I thought you were just going to workshop it like right here on the pod. Like, that would be, that would be <laughs> well, we can't. Well, what would you call this show then? If it's not going to be the 25, what would you call it? Ah, man. Something dangerous, you know, something edgy, because that's what you want to do, right? Like, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's a, nothing, nothing safe, nothing pedestrian. We want something that's going to say to the world, "We are here. You will listen to us, and you will be amazed." Man, I got to think about that. That's really that's really interesting. <laughs> Caitlin, you got anything? <laughs> no, I was just thinking. Um, Esau already got you beat on the you know radical name. What is that one called? The disruptors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, a very radical name. Boo hiss. That is a good name, but we'll we'll have to we'll come back to that. So hopefully by by next month when we do the show again, we'll figure out what we're going to call it. So thank <laughs> you, people listening to our first episode of what for the moment we're going to go ahead and still call the twenty five from Christ and Pop Culture. If you've listened to this show before. You are familiar with us. We tried this a year ago where we tried to bring people on. We talk about relevant and recent pop culture events that reflected the good, the true and the beautiful in pop culture and decided, you know, which one would be great for our massive end of the year list. It was a great idea and it was a horrible thing to happen logistically because trying to get three people every week on short notice to do a, a show like that was a little bit more than we could have uh, than we anticipated. So we're coming back at it fresh this year with uh, a little bit of a different take. So we still have people, but we're going to do it once a month, and we're going to basically do a month in review, kind of uh, what has happened, what's important to us, and why we think it was important. So for this inaugural new episode, uh, we have some returning guests who have been on the show before, and that is, of course, Caitlin Shess and Tyler Burns. Now, real quick, so people are familiar with who you are. Uh, let's start with you, Caitlin. Give us a give us a quick bio. If you just met someone on the street and they wanted to know what you do for a living, what would that be? Uh, um, so I am a seminary student. I am a writer, and um, I do ministry with young adults uh, in Dallas, Texas. And my first book is coming out in August with University Press. Now, hold on. Last time we were on a show together, it was like a year ago mm-hmm. and you were still in seminary. You haven't graduated yet? No. You haven't mastered, <laughs> you haven't mastered Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and can write cuneiform in your no, sleep? You, you can't no. do that yet? <laughs> mm. I'm in a, a THM program that is massive, um, and I'm taking an extra year right now to look into PhD programs. Uh, me and my associate's degree in film and video production <laughs> sit here in awe of you. <laughs> it's just called avoiding real work by doing more school. <laughs> and Tyler Burns, uh, you have quite the prolific uh, resume. Give us a give us a sample. What can people know you I don't from? Know about that, I'm just involved in a lot of different things. I guess. Um, yeah, so I'm a pastor in uh, uh, the Panhandle of Florida. I am also the vice president of the Witness of Black Christian Collective, and I uh, co-host the podcast, Pass the Mic. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Husband, father, and I'm also, I have to say this, I'm also very, very excited about Caitlin's book. I'm excited to read it. And I hope I'm on the list, because sometimes they send me yeah. books early. So I hope I'm on that list. So whoever's listening and sets that up. Put me on the list. I want that book so I can read it and do all that good stuff. So, oh, thanks, Tyler. Now, also, if you happen to need, you know, anybody who does a decent audio book, oh, um, yeah. you know, just just throwing that out there too. <laughs> the master, the master is on. Jonathan is the master. <laughs> oh man! But now, okay, real quick, can you tell us what is the book about? Because I'm curious. Yeah, so the book, it's called The Liturgy of Politics, and the subtitle is Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. 
And so the first half is really about how we are formed spiritually by our political engagement, by the media we consume and the conversations we have and the way that we live in the world changes um, us spiritually on a deeper level than we think. And then the second half goes into how the worship of the church is supposed to counterform us in ways that change how we live in the world. And so to counteract some of those really strong political stories that change us, the worship of the church teaches us a stronger story that then should change the way that we act politically in the world. Now you see why I'm excited for it. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm excited just from hearing this. When, when will this book be out and available? August 25th. August 25th. So we got some yeah. time yet. All yeah. Right. Awesome. Is it available for pre-order yet? On the IVP site. Not anywhere else yet, but soon other places. Excellent. Okay, so what we're going to do tonight is uh, Tyler, Caitlin, and I have all have all brought something to the table that we want to discuss. Um, but for the moment, before we get to that, let's take a moment and we're going to review what happened in January, some of the big headlines. And, um, you know, to start a year off, January 2020 was was not a quiet start to 2020. Uh, we we've had. <laughs> We uh we almost went to war with Iran, so that was fun. Uh, <laughs> right, right. We uh we had the uh, Ukrainian international flight shot down over Iran. We've had the Australian wildfires. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harry and Meghan uh, have stepped back from their royal duties. That's right, yo. That <laughs> did happen this month. <laughs> wow. It happened. Okay, okay, um, okay. We have Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison uh, being heckled and ridiculed by his by uh, his Australian uh, citizens. We have the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. We have the Harvey Weinstein trial. Uh, Brexit happened. It's been a crazy month. <laughs> yeah. 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 Man. Wow. Wow. And that's just January. It's been crazy. Wow. So. So let's start with you, Caitlin. Uh, you wanted to talk about something that happened towards the end of January. Technically, it happened on February 3rd, but we're recording this a little little <laughs> bit into February. So we're going to give a little bit of leniency on this one. So oh, you wanted to bring up. Oh, yeah. No, 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 not a problem. But it's a good conversation. So why don't you tell us what did you want to bring up tonight? Something about Iowa? I don't yeah. know. Something happened in Iowa. Yeah, no one's been talking about it, but I think it's important for us to talk about the Iowa caucus. Um, no, no one's been talking about the Iowa right. caucus, not at all. <laughs> Which, while well, you're right, happened technically in February. You know, like any political event, there's all of the lead up and the conversation. Oh, yeah. and the, you know, So it feels like it's been happening for a very long time, even though it only happened in the beginning of February. Um, so, yeah, I think one of the reasons I wanted to talk about the Iowa caucus is partially because... I feel like in my sphere of the world with my peers, mostly young evangelicals, I have never seen so much interest in the mechanics of a political process and the specific things that are happening and talking about it on social media. And I was just really struck by how for a generation of people who, you know, maybe were a little bit politically involved, depending on their age prior to 2016, 2016 was a big shock, um, depending on how they responded, it could be different, but it was definitely momentous. And then now to see that, you know, there might be some people that are trying to pull back, they're aware of how dangerous being involved in politics can be, and they're pulling back. But I've been surprised by how many more people are interested in conversations, not only about the Democratic nominees, um, or potential nominee, um, but also about just the mechanics of how a caucus works. I feel like I hear more people talking about it and sharing articles. And um, I've been listening to this really cool podcast called Pantsuit Politics, which is these two women, one that's more conservative, one that's more liberal, talking about politics. And I went to one of their events recently, and all of these young women, a lot of whom are from more privileged backgrounds, that had every reason, I think, you know, very selfishly to not be involved in this that are becoming very interested and engaged. And so that's just an interesting conversation to me. I mean, obviously the caucus backfired in a lot of ways and the technological breakdown is very interesting to read about. But to me, the thing that was interesting is watching young evangelicals, not just being interested in talking about politics um, more broadly and generally, but actually talking about what does it mean to be involved in a very hands-on nuts and bolts kind of way. Now, before we get into that a little deeper, I want to ask for clarification on one thing. Um, the term evangelical, 
is a very loaded term. Mm-hmm. If depending if you're talking to um, uh, UK theologian Oz Guinness, who has a very specific view on evangelicalism and the the evangelical manifesto, so to speak, mm-hmm. or are we talking about? Are you referring using it as a term co-opted by one what one would call the mainstream media mm. as identifying you know the eighty percent white evangelical Trump supporter base? Yeah. When, when you say evangelical, for the sake of conversation, clarify for me a little bit. What do you mean by evangelical? So we know who we're talking about. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean both what I you know the Bebbington quadrilateral type of theological designation, but I also think we can't abstract that from culture and history. And so um, there's definitely a unique form of American evangelicalism that I mean when I say that that um, has some unique elements that the Bebbington quadrilateral gets at um, being interested in. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm going to stop you right there real quick for, for, for the layest of laymen yes. or lay people like myself. <laughs> what is the Bevington quadrilateral? I have never heard of this thing. And Great for question. those of you who don't know what it is, I'm going to include some links to this because I'm yeah. Googling this very, very quickly. And I will put the links in the show notes. But for those of us listening to us right now, give us a quick overview. What is the Bevington quadrilateral? Okay, so I'm, I'm glad so that curious. you're Googling it because I'm not sure I'll remember all four. Um, it's <laughs> personal. It's conversionism. Biblist, like caring about a high authority of scripture. That's the second one. Third one, activism, evangelism. So like telling people and doing work in the world. And then what's the fourth one? Um, I think it's cruciformism. Is that it? Yes. Yes. Which those four things, a lot of people, and, and that's been a pretty strong criticism is that those four things are not super unique to what we tend to mean by evangelicalism, which is why I say, I think it matters that we think about it historically and culturally. So when I mean it, I tend to mean Western American um, conservative Protestant denominations that take on some unique flavors of that focus on conversionism and, you know, accepting Jesus into your heart, that kind of language that can kind of have some unique political and cultural effects, but is not entirely defined by those. That actually does help. Thank you. So I will throw links to that up in the show notes. So based off of what you just said, then for evangelicals, why is that so fascinating to you uh, for that people are turning out? Because it's also worth noting the only age group in the last election in 2016 that had an increase in turnout was the 18 to 29 year olds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they went from like the mid 40s to almost 50 percent turnout. Um, the highest voting age that turns out is, of course, our um, <clears throat> our more seasoned uh, citizens. <laughs> Uh, we'll leave it at that. Uh, and then it goes down from there. And while they're definitely nowhere near the majority with barely 50% turnout, um, what do you attribute that interest to? Like, why are they suddenly so interested in the politics, specifically the mechanics? Mm. Yeah, I think part of the reason it's interesting to me is because I do think a lot of people in my peer group, younger evangelicals, are whether they would take that label or not, but kind of fit in that um, cultural theological space. They have seen the legacy that they've inherited and they're really troubled by it. And so it's surprising to me because I know so many friends and um, people who are writing things and are on the internet that have this sort of bent towards withdrawing now because they're afraid of what happens when you get involved and they've seen the mistakes that have been made historically. but then there's this other part where people are becoming more involved and more diversifying their sources of media and the kind of candidates that they support. But the interesting thing is that I also think that younger, you know, millennial, Gen Z, et cetera, have a tendency towards protests and social media, which can be really great things, but then can sometimes neglect sort of the nuts and bolts of things of showing up at a caucus, which is long and can be kind of boring, actually being involved mm-hmm. with, you know, campaigning, going door to door or raising money, fundraising. Mm-hmm. And so that tends to be that older generation, even at a lot of the Iowa caucuses, um, the people that were reporting from it, you know, you do a scan of the room and there's definitely a certain demographic that's usually white and older. And so having a younger, more diverse group, especially of people who are motivated by distinctly Christian theological um, reasons for being involved is both interesting in some ways. I think it could be expected, but I also think it's encouraging to those of us who either are frustrated by the legacy of political involvement that we've inherited and are worried that 
the backlash to that means we just don't get involved anymore. Uh, Caitlin, I, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this, this concept of like young political involvement and Twitter and some of the social media conversations and dialogues that kind of lean more towards kind of like a purist view of everything. Mm-hmm. So everything's very extreme and there's like mm-hmm. um, these drastic polls on the right and left. Uh, how do you think our generation's involvement is kind of pushing people as far as compromise, as far as the political process? Because I see that we're very involved, but do you think we understand the way it works? Do you think we mm-hmm. understand not just the nuts and bolts of getting involved as far as you know campaigning or or canvassing or whatever that may look like, but also you know how to compromise with people who we disagree with? Yeah, I think that's a really good point um, because I think you're right. It's it is very purist, and it also is you're just inevitably formed by the thing you're reacting to and that you grew up in. And so if you come from a really staunchly conservative background that treats everything like this is the hill we die on and everything is a, not just a moral issue, because I think everything is a moral issue on some level, but that it's something you can't compromise on. And then you switch kind of some of your political leanings, but you take all of that way of thinking with you. Um, I do think there's a lot of people that fit that mold. I think that's partially what was encouraging to me about the conversation about caucusing and um, the nuts and bolts of things is partially that I think inevitably, once you start getting into that, that can change a little bit of that purist mindset. That's a lot easier to uphold on Twitter or at a protest or whatever. Um, but I do think that's something that's going to be increasingly difficult for people to shape young people about whether that's pastors or political leaders of helping people understand how to, how to think about how to prioritize different issues, how to compromise with people how to have better dialogue. And and that's honestly what's encouraging to me too about this podcast, the Pantsu Politics podcast, is that it features a more ideologically liberal and ideologically conservative person who are both Christians and they don't talk about their faith very often, but that becomes somewhat of an impetus for how they are involved is being willing to listen to each other. Um, But I think, yeah, it's really hard when you've been sort of formed in one place and you're reacting to that strongly, you end up taking so much of it with you. I think you're right. No, that's really interesting. Yeah. I, I think that's a good sum I think that's a good summation of it because because there's a level to which this president has caused us to really see things from an aggressively polarized lens because mm-hmm. for for many of us it feels like we're under siege, whether marginalized people groups, whether it's women or African Americans or other people of color. Um, and and or other groups as well, and feel a certain level of attack, and so it almost feels yeah. like there's there's this aggressive sectarianism to make sure okay we need to get this person out of the White House, mm-hmm. but at the same time looking at maybe a current crop of candidates um, and not really finding necessarily a candidate that excites us, but yeah. you know trying to get beyond this 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 sense of we can't have another four years of this administration, you know, and it just seems increasingly sectarian and, and petty and messy in a lot of different ways. And so I'm, I'm actually trying to figure that out myself, which is why I'm just, I'm so excited about your book and, and that conversation around it, because I'm trying to figure out how to lead other people, you know, as a pastor, as someone who's, who's kind of speaking into young people's lives, but also trying to figure out for myself, like, how do I prioritize these these issues, and I think you know. Sometimes I, I, I feel like I, I piecemeal it together, mm-hmm. but then, then something happens, and I'm like, ah, but what about this, and what about that? And so mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm constantly editing, um, even in that process, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And and the listening to you say that now, part of what I also think the role of pastors and community leaders and and a lot of different people can also play to go part of the nuts and bolts thing is also thinking more locally and going, there's so much room for you to do really positive things on a local level. And the more abstract and more national you get, the more polarized it tends to be partially because you're not really doing anything very much yourself when it comes to, you know, community resources and involvement, how it impacts your neighbors, but it's very theoretical and easy to get argumentative and purist about versus being involved in particular issues locally that you can kind of find ways to 
at least parse out here are some issues I can be more involved in that don't always have to mean I have to take on this candidate, which means I have to take on everything they think versus can I be involved locally with advocating for this issue that I don't have qualms about adding other things to it because it's just this one thing. And that doesn't mean there aren't those hard decisions to make too, but I do think the more locally minded we can be, the more that it gives opportunities where people can go, oh, I can advocate for this thing, or I can support this candidate on the school board. (laughs) And I'm not thinking about abortion, you know, but I'm thinking about who can help make sure that students have the resources they need and like the district is apportioned the right way and things like that. Let me ask you both a question since you are both Caitlin and, and Tyler, you both have been educated in um in the Bible formally, <laughs> where I have not, beyond um Professor Bill Brew's introduction to the Old Testament at Cornerstone University, which I okay, think okay, I okay. slept through more than I paid attention. This, and this is gonna be a loaded question, so I would l- I'd love to and this is a bit of a rabbit trail, so we won't spend too much time on it. But it's interesting that you say, Caitlin, especially the the religious side is becoming more and more active in this, especially the young crowd. So it also interests me because the departure of youth from the traditional church is still increasing at a rapid rate. I think it was an IVP or a Lifeway survey. In fact, it was a Lifeway survey, an anonymous survey from pastors across the country. A great deal of pastors do not agree with the current administration, whereas their flock definitely do. But because of the fiscal retribution, for lack of a better term, that would happen if they not even discussed the administration specifically, but brought up politics and or the view on that from the pulpit would lead to we don't know. They would be they'd be so scared of it. And they're and they don't speak up about it. So where are these young evangelicals getting the inspiration to be so involved? Is it from the church? Is it from social media? What is it? What is leading them to be so active in it? If it's not the church? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I'll admit that I'm pretty isolated. I mean, I am very much on the internet. And so when I think about people who are peers of mine, I tend to think of people who are active on Twitter and are reading the same people I'm reading. And so my sample is probably not um, quite accurate. But I do I do think you're right that one of the most interesting dynamics and one of the reasons I wanted to write the book that I just wrote was because there is this serious divide between how pastors think about politics and how their congregations do. And I mean, this was even evidence. There was a, a letter that a lot of evangelicals signed um, probably a year ago about um, refugees and immigrants and some of the bans that, that Trump was instituting. And there was all these big name pastors that signed it and a lot of other, you know, pastors of decently sized churches. And it didn't reflect statistically where most of their congregations were. And to me, that reflects both, as you said, the difficulty that comes with um, expecting financial retribution. But I also think it comes from this assumption we have that pastors don't know any better than the rest of their congregation about how to think politically. And they have no role in shaping the way that their congregations think politically explicitly or implicitly. And part of the problem with that is that we have a really narrow view of what counts as politics. And so when I talk to people and I say, yeah, your worship in your church is political and the sermons that you're listening to are political, they think that I mean your pastor should get up and say, vote for so-and-so, not When your pastor comes across a passage in scripture that says, this is how the people of God are meant to treat immigrants and foreigners and refugees, they should say that. And if there's an appropriate way to connect that with things that are happening, then that's a good thing to do. Um, And that's political in a really serious way, but it's not partisan or it shouldn't be. And it doesn't reflect kind of a endorsement wholesale of a politician or a political party's platform. Um, And I will say working in a church while I've been writing this book has (laughs) helped moderate some of my impulses because I am doing that thing where I'm teaching in my church and I'm at a very conservative church in Dallas and 
have had the fears the night before of like, am I going to get a call from my boss? That's like, oh, this line was crossed and you know, you don't have a job. So I want to be really sensitive to that fear that pastors have. And and I don't bear the full weight of that. I'm not the senior pastor preaching on Sunday mornings, but I do think there's something important and prophetic about saying to pastors, your role is to tell the truth about what scripture says. And scripture says very politically relevant things. And if your fear of financial retribution is keeping you from saying it, then you're the same as the false prophets in the Old Testament that are condemned for telling the people what they want to hear as it says in Jeremiah, for saying peace, peace, when there is no peace, and there's going to be consequences for you in a really, in a spiritual sense, even if there are, even if you're trying to avoid the economic consequences of that. Tyler, anything you want to add on that before? Oh we man, move it's, on? it's a yeah, it's it's hard to add anything to that. I think that's brilliant. <laughs> um, you know, for me, I come from a tradition where the political is inextricably linked with the theological, so there's really no. There's really not a, a separation of, of of those types of things. So, you know, I distinctly remember, and I, I you know, my father is, you know, my predecessor, um, and you know, I distinctly remember when Hurricane Katrina happened, and when Hurricane Katrina happened, you know, he's he's extremely, you know, was a culture in a very conservative Bible college, and um, had a very, you know, white evangelical, you know, charismatic type of training and upbringing and all those things. But um, when Hurricane Katrina happened, he I will never forget the sermon he delivered. Um, it was a fiery corrective um, that really took aim at the way the people were being treated, um, how they were being treated as citizens and how they were being portrayed by the media and the ways in which the administration at that time had, you know, have perpetrated neglect and um, misinformation and things of that nature. And so I grew up in a, in a setting where, while it wasn't necessarily explicit for you to vote one way or the other, there really wasn't a, a, a separation in our theology between what it would mean to be a believer and be politically active. And so now as a pastor, now as a pastor who preaches regularly, I don't see any way out of the intersection of those things. Um, when I preach about Herod at the Advent, I don't see any, you know, any inter, any any lack of intersection between um, a tyrannical ruler um, who attacks children, right? I, that, that's something yeah. I have to talk about. Um, you know, even you know, we've been going through a, a series on Nehemiah, and I talked about on uh, this past Sunday. Talked about Gloria Richardson, who was a civil rights activist who. Most famous picture, one of the most famous pictures of the civil rights movement, her pushing her as a protester, pushing away a white police officer's uh, bayonet um, and kind of giving him that that look. And we talked about opposition, you know, and it was connected to Sam Ballant and Tobiah and all this. And, you know, for me, so that's norm. That's like normal. You know, that's like a, it's Black History Month. It's, it's an intersection. It situates people in the idea of opposition. All that is is normal. So. It's really difficult. I think there's there's different there's different rules in different cultural settings, but I think pastors, as Caitlin so eloquently said, have a responsibility to preach the text in context, but also from their context as well. Um, so I'm going to see things as a black man in America that other people are not going to see, um, and vice versa. But it's important for us to preach, um, you know, in context, from context, then also for our context as well which means our, our people have to be equipped and we're not just giving them lectures. Um, we're giving them transformative truth. And so that should transform how they view their neighbors, transform how they view their vocation, their systems, their money, their family, um, and their responsibility to the kingdom. So there's a lot that needs to be unpacked in that. But I do think that m- much of what we see now is that culturally our young people are formed by whatever media sources that they choose and whatever culturally is the wave or the conversation that's happening. And what a shame when, when the church seeds ground um, as we talk about discipleship and formation. So um, I I completely agree. And and it's, it's hard because there are different contextual, uh, uh, you know, concepts and ideas, but always prioritizing, you know, what does God command us to do? Um, which is to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
that applies in every area of life, including politics. Really, the, I was thinking while you were talking, Tyler, um, I just watched, I watched Just Mercy like three times. But one of the things that I just think people need to be getting out of that is that when white Christians, white pastors and churches are going, what do we do? You know, how do we approach this thing, this political mess that we're in? It's a real shame when they don't look to the black church in America as an example of incredible faithfulness and public witness about issues of justice in the world. And when we have the hubris to think that we have to figure out the answers to this without looking to our brothers and sisters who have such rich resources, that's a shame on us. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I appreciate you saying that because I think there's such an the, the body is so big and the kingdom of God is so diverse that it's just a shame for us not to tap into it. I, I've been telling people I've learned so much from um, Latin uh, American theologians. Um, I've learned so much um, from people who are outside of my tradition. I've just I've learned so much. Um, and even mining, obviously, the Black Christian expression and the Black church tradition, which is so rich and I could spend you know the rest of my life. Um, you know, kind of extracting gems from that. But it, it's just a shame that we only see, we see ourselves in such isolation and we see ourselves um, with such a lack of imagination as well. Um, I, I, we can't see certain things because we just, we haven't been at that, you know, from a marginalized position or from a certain vantage point, you know, that many of us understand very well. So I think you're right. I think it's, I think it's important for us to to look to the communities who have been on the margins and see how did they persevere and overcome and how now can we do similar things um, in a different in a different moment in history. One of the things I'll wrap us up with here is I was telling the, I was telling you both this before we started recording. I, I grew up in a very, very conservative um, Midwest blue collar area in Northwest Illinois, very close to Iowa, like 10 minutes and I, I grew up very, very surrounded by uh, this was when the the religious right, uh, Dobson and whatnot, was really starting to find their their footing. I, I manage a retail store on, uh, for my nine to five. I know. Very exciting. And <laughs> one of the things I, I, I hired a worker uh, about two years ago who no longer works for me. He's, he's a very, very dear friend of our family. And one of the things that I knew I needed to do from my work with you, Tyler, especially, and I mentioned this earlier from some of the projects we worked on in the past is to get out of my, and not intentionally, to get out of my white privileged little information silo, I needed to consciously make an effort to seek out relationships, if not friendships, with people who are not in my world, uh, and especially those who are in minorities, and as you said, uh, are on the marginalized spectrum. And that, for me, this this friend is gay. And in my world that I lived in, and still do to a certain extent, that is very much the minority. And through the next year and a half, two years of, of having conversations with him, having... Uh, drinks and meals and having him over to our house to to break bread with my family we've learned what the world looks like through lenses not of our own and with that it's changed my entire outlook on life along with other things that have happened in my life that have completely shifted the way i look at life and the way i look at my politics the way i look at my theology such as it is with an associate's degree in film production. Uh, it's very, very, very layman's looking. But with that perspective, you know, I've completely changed my political thought. Um, and if my father ever listens to this podcast, my apologies, dad, I am now a registered Democrat. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> um, You're out now. It's out. I, I am out. I am out. It is out. Um, but it's, it's what's happened when you, and I'm not saying this is going to happen to every time you talk to someone who is of a minority, but the important part is to listen. The important part is to sit down, have the conversation with someone you don't necessarily agree with on something, but understand where they're coming from. And when you have those kind of conversations and you listen and you understand where they're coming from, you can live together. Mm -hmm. You can have community together. Because even within Christendom, we don't always agree with each other. <laughs> 
don't even get me started on baptism and paleo baptism. That that we can go on for that for hours. <laughs> but within those, we can still sit and break bread and have fellowship yeah. together. To use some Christianese that, words there. No, so I love that man. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So we're going to put a pin in that. Um, great conversation on that. Yes, and we're going to yes, move into, important. Tyler, what you wanted to bring to the table tonight. Because there was, there was another really big event that happened in January. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about that and what, uh, what it meant for you. Yeah. So more heaviness. Um, (laughs) (laughs) it was a heavy uh, month, man. Yeah. It's been a heavy month, but obviously cannot talk about the start of 2020 without, without referencing the uh, tragic death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter, a 13 year old daughter, Gianna or Gigi and, um, seven other people in a helicopter crash in Calabasas, California. And um, this gripped everyone. I remember I was actually, when I found out, I was with my family. And um, so it's my wife and, and our two kids, and then also my extended family. So my my parents, and then also my brother and my sister. And we were at lunch, and everyone was having their little side conversations, playing with the kids, et cetera. And then I remember scrolling through Facebook really quickly, um, just, you know, because my, my father asked me to look something up. And I remember scrolling through Facebook, and I saw multiple people saying, is the Kobe news true? Is the Kobe news true? And then when it was confirmed, you know, I mean, we sat in silence. I mean, it was like there was no room for conversation. There was no room for anything. And it hit us a certain way, I think, not just as sports fans, not just as human beings, but also as um, Black people as well. And also as, you know, seeing someone who is an icon within our community and an icon as a representative of our community um, being so tragically and so quickly taken away from us um, at 41 years old. So it was it was very interesting to kind of parse out that grief and figure out, you know, kind of what that that felt like. But it sparked a lot of different conversations as well, which I know I know we'll get into. But are, are either of you guys sports fans? You like watch Kobe Bryant or watch the Lakers when he played? Unfortunately, I'm I'm the stereotype of no sports knowledge at all. <laughs> <laughs> I no, that's growing fine. up that's fine. Uh, as I said I grew up in Illinois so my my era was the Rodman Pippen Jordan era the late 90s early aughts Bulls that was after I moved out of Illinois sports kind of fell away I keep tabs on on sports but usually just on Chicago teams because right. I mean we only win championships every hundred years or so, so. <laughs> your day's coming your day's coming. Uh, yeah um, I'll be I'll be in the nursing home when the next one comes <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's interesting because you know as you think about Kobe Bryant and just to kind of bridge why this is so important and why people responded the way that they did, you know, Kobe was with one team his entire career. So he was with the Los Angeles Lakers for the extent of his career, uh, which I believe was 20 years or 21 years. And Kobe was one of the early, really successful athletes who jumped from high school to the pros. So he went from being a senior in high school to the next year being on an NBA team, um, getting drafted early in the first round. So Kobe had the stereotypical, I mean, all the stats and everything, you know, five-time NBA champion, regular season MVP, two-time finals MVP. Um, he has the second most points scored in a game ever. He scored 81 points in a game, um, you know, which was just off of Will Chamberlain's record. And so he has all those types of things, you know, 18-time All-Star. You know, he was very gifted. But to really understand Kobe, you have to understand that he was this generation's Michael Jordan. Right. He was this maniacally competitive a supremely gifted basketball savant. Like he he knew everything about the game and he was like furiously competitive. So he was known for his intimidation, his will. And, and kind of to compare him, a lot of people know Shaquille O'Neal, of course. A lot of people know Shaq. He played with Shaq. 
And Shaq was unstoppable. They called him the Diesel. Shaq was unstoppable. If he got the ball, there was nothing you could do to stop him. He was going to score. But sometimes Shaq didn't necessarily have the drive or the will or the motivation or the energy um, because he was 7'3", because he was so big. You know, Shaq was just, you know, when he decided he was going to come and play, he was unstoppable. Maybe one of the most unstoppable players ever. But Kobe was different. Kobe was inevitable. Like he was almost like this supervillain that was completely unkillable. Like he was always <laughs> going to, you had to bury him. Like if you wanted to be Kobe, you had to blow them out. Um, that's just how people responded. And so th- there's this, the last championship he won was against, you know, the arch rival Boston Celtics. And during that seven game series, Kobe had a bone spur in his ankle um, that he needed to get like regular injections for. He also had a broken finger, um, I think on his right hand. And you wouldn't know it. He just played through it. I mean, he was just like, he was just like you know, cyborg like mentality. Um, and so Kobe represented something that was almost like this determination, this grit, and this never die. You can't kill me no matter how hard you try. Um, you know, basketball, sports intensity, like raw intensity. And so for a lot of us, that was huge. But then he transitioned into being this really sympathetic figure after he retired. Um, and obviously other things happened that we'll talk about in a little bit. But once he retired, everybody thought he was going to be miserable because he had attacked the game so much and he had been so competitive. But he transitioned and seemed supremely happy and comfortable and became an advocate for women's sports and women's basketball and dove headlong into being a dad and a um, a, a sports coach, a basketball coach for his daughter, Gigi, and for his other daughters as well. Um and then he won, he actually ended up winning an Academy Award. He won an Oscar for um, a short film that he had done. And so he was just beginning to master what it meant to be a post-career athlete. And so for him to be taken away, um, it's just so fascinating and tragic. And so for a lot of us, you know, and I was telling somebody this, it's almost like Kobe is so prepared, like he prepared against all of like very famous, like he knew everybody. Everybody he was going to go against, he had a he had a folder on them. He had tapes on them. Everything he knew how he's going to beat them. But it's almost like this was the only way he could have died. Is tragically something that he couldn't prepare for. Um, you know, because if he had an illness, he would have beaten it. Um, if there was you know something that had happened or a car accident that he didn't pass away from, he would have overcome it. But this is one thing he couldn't prepare for. And the one thing he couldn't prepare for is the thing that ultimately took his life. And it's it's almost poetic in a tragic sense that the unexpected is what took away, you know, this this sports icon. So that's that's a little bit of why Kobe is so beloved and important to a lot of people. The job that I have, um, I manage a video game retail store. And I remember the way I found out about it, I was working when it happened. Um I suddenly started getting calls if I had uh, a copy of, of NBA 2K. Yeah, 2K, yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> okay, the, okay. the Legend and Gold Edition uh, the year had uh, had Kobe on the cover. He was the first one uh, to have an alternate cover. Calls just kept coming in, coming in. And I had like four or five people show up like, do you have the old 2K with Kobe on the cover? And I'm like, why is everyone all about Kobe all of a sudden? What, what What's going on? And the guy said, what, you didn't hear? And I'm like, no, I, I didn't. What's what's going on? And then he, he tells me Kobe passed in, in, in the helicopter accident. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I, because I may, I may not have that much of a knowledge of who he was as a person. I knew who he was and I was cognizant of the of the impact this would have. So I, I you know, pop open the phone, do a quick Google search on Kobe Bryant. And I'm like, wow, absolutely. Yeah, it was heavy. It was heavy. And it sparked a lot of conversation and a lot of uh complication as well because because for all of his you know beloved nature and for all of his sports accomplishments um the reaction was mixed i think as far as grief and the reaction was complicated as far as how people viewed his legacy and viewed the totality of of who he is um as a man on or on and off the court as well bringing that up uh, as you said we're, we're going to talk about it and i we you can't not mention it well i'll let you talk about it Tyler, sure, if you don't yeah, mind. yeah, yeah. yeah. Bring, bring us up to speed on, on that, on that uh, checkered pass that mm-hmm. that came up into light and caused a little bit of a, 
Twitter war between Gail King and yeah. Snoop Dogg. Yeah, wow. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting because the, the case itself is complicated enough, but then getting to Gail and Snoop and all that, you know, it's a it's just a lot that goes into to that. So, I, you know, the context is just so, so layered. But, um, you know, I will say this, you know, trigger warning for anybody who's listening and, you know, is a sexual assault survivor and things of that nature. So just want to let you know that we are talking about this. But in mm-hmm. uh, 2003, um, he was in Eagle County, Colorado, and was charged with sexually assaulting um, a 19-year-old woman. And so that case never actually went to trial. Um, they settled out of court um, and those charges were dropped. But um, it was a very uh, tumultuous time. Every Pretty much every sports, major sports, sports figure, especially in basketball, in the middle of their careers or right before their prime or in their prime, they have something that happens that that really becomes the major obstacle of their lives and of their careers. And some of them overcome it, some of them don't. Um, and some of these are self-inflicted wounds, others, others of these aren't. So you think of uh, Michael Jordan when he retired the first time uh, after his father was killed. So his father was killed, um, brutally murdered, and then he retires, you know, wins the championship that year to complete the three-peat, retires, goes to minor league baseball because he's, it was just, he was in grief, you know, and yeah. he was trying to figure out what does it look like to be, um, you know, a man without my father around. Um, you take someone like LeBron James who left Cleveland. This was much, you know, much on a much lesser scale. He leaves Cleveland, goes to Miami in the middle of his career. So he leaves his hometown team that was able to draft him, then goes to Miami and gets so much backlash because of how publicly he did that and then loses the finals that year. And that's like the big thing for LeBron that he has to overcome. And so Kobe had that as well, but this was much more serious and much more um, much more complicated and, and much more um, as far as like a real world consequence than something that LeBron would have faced. But um, And so this is pre-Me Too movement. So Kobe basically says, hey, I committed adultery. It was consensual. Um, but then many years later comes out and says, um, I, you know, I guess I thought it was consensual, but maybe there was something that happened that that I didn't understand as a man and apologizes to the woman. But the damage really had already been done. And there's a great article about this in the uh, New York Daily News by a former CAPC staff writer, Bradford Davis. Um, but I guess we can link in, in the notes and everything if people are trying to reckon with that legacy. And so... Um, it just talks about the ways in which that defense, his defense team bullied the woman. Um, his defense team released her identity. Um, his defense team, um, you know, brought up her, her issues with mental health, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's, it's hard for people to talk about this stuff, but I think it's important for us to really reckon with why this is such a complicated thing for so many people who are survivors of sexual assault and survivors of molestation and survivors of sexual violation um, and I think it's also to, good to bring the context from the Black community. The Black community responded in the way, and a lot of people don't understand this. They're like, why are you defending this guy? You know you know, you know what he did or what he at least admitted to doing in some way, shape, or form, um, even though it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily proven in court or it wasn't brought to trial. You know there was something wrong that happened. And people don't understand that in the Black community – there are a couple of ethics that we have. The first of which is you don't talk about the dead when they're not allowed to defend themselves. And so that's like a big thing within our community that extends to major figures that extends to our, um, you know, our, our grandparents, our parents, um, people in our family who may have a tawdry past, but who have left us in an untimely way. We don't talk about that because they're not here to defend themselves. Um, you know, but it also lends itself to complication because, we defend them because we're used to broader society never forgiving a black mistake, right? Um, even now to this day, people still bring up in evangelical circles, Dr. King, they still bring up his adult, they still bring it up as a discrediting of his legacy. Um, we're just, we're so used to having our heroes um, skewered by the press, um, Michael Vick, who was a, who was convicted of of doing heinous things to dogs, um, not allowed to be on the Pro Bowl stage, or not, or, or there's a petition. There was a petition going up against him being allowed to even be 
a part of the Pro Bowl because people said he should never be able to do It's almost like he, he served his time in jail and it wasn't enough. Um, and so there's a sense in which we, we fiercely defend our heroes for better and for worse, because we're, we have this phrase, we all we got. And so if we don't defend them, they're not going to defend us. Um, and so it's just that, that mentality and it, and it breeds a bit of tribalism that is unhealthy, especially as we talk about the intersection of, of concern for women and concern for the most vulnerable among us. But it's rooted in this idea of they're going to lie on us. They're they're not going to tell the truth. They're going to say we did stuff we didn't do. And they're going to do it just so they can discredit us. And so there's those tension points that are very um, difficult for us to parse through in, in our communities. And that really converged in Kobe. Let me ask you a, a question about that. So for me, as looking looking out, obviously, as as a as a white man. Discussing this, discussing Kobe, like how how do you even begin to navigate that kind of a conversation? Um, you and I know each other. We know pretty much how we communicate with each other. But let's say you want to have this kind of a conversation and you want to broach it up. What are some things that, for me specifically as a white person or anyone listening to this, um, hopefully lots of people, can can approach this kind of topic and not even just maybe with Kobe, but how would you approach this kind of a topic so you would have a nuanced conversation with it? Like, what are what are some things we should be cognizant of? Man, that's a that's a loaded question. Um, it, it is. <laughs> I think first people have to understand the nature of black grief, and black grief is a communal experience. Like, whenever someone, whenever a celebrity dies within our communities, whether you know recently there were untimely deaths, but then also deaths that were expected. So you take Whitney Houston, untimely death. Mm-hmm. Michael Jackson, untimely death. Uh, Prince, untimely death. Um, and then you take some that were expected, like Aretha Franklin, um, you know, like a Muhammad Ali, et cetera, um, getting up in age. They model for us, those people, those celebrities and those people who are in the public eye, they model for us what possibility looks like. And so when you've seen for years that, you know, you you can't be when you've been told you can't be anything, when you've been told that you're a stereotype, you're going to be a statistic regardless of where you grew up, um, when the police harass you, you know, when, you know, the public conversations about you always talk about the pathologies within your community to see positive figures. We cling to them and, and we feel like we know them, even though we don't. We feel like they're a part of our our community and our family, even though they would never know us. Right. Um, it's just the nature of our experience. So when when we lose them, there's a grieving process. And I think a lot of people fired off tweets prematurely. Um, a couple of people who are very famous just were very reckless and irresponsible as far as like parsing out that conversation. Because I think there's a thin line in reckoning with that past and kind of box checking from a, um, a, a popular social media standpoint. I want to be on the right side of this conversation. I want to be the person that says says that. And it was just very, it was very unhelpful, I felt like. Mm-hmm. Um, so understand the nature of Black communal grief. And then also, I think number two, man, understand that not every conversation is for you. And this is really hard for people to hear. And I'm sorry. And <laughs> I know this sounds really sectarian, and but not every conversation is for you. And one of the biggest things that we see is, you know, whether it's certain conservative news sites whether it's certain uh, evangelical leaders, they hop into conversations that they don't culturally understand. They don't have the range for this. And so it really frustrates me when people assume that every conversation, we have to explain everything to you. Um, we don't. And and I think at some points, man, this is just an in-group conversation. Like There's layers to what's going on with Snoop and Gail and Snoop and Oprah and all that. Snoop is wrong. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, Snoop is a thousand percent wrong. But there's layers to that that like people people just don't understand, and they don't understand why anyone would think that that's okay. And I'm like, this is an in group conversation. We're dealing with this as a community, and so we don't really need like people hopping in and saying, "Well, yeah, this, this, and that because of this." I can't believe this. And I'm like, man, you don't even. I mean, you, you're trying to jump to level twenty, you know, and it's like. <laughs> It's, it's years of context in all of this, you know? Um, yeah. So I think just understand every conversation. And I, and, but then I think finally, like, 
you know, respect the range of emotions and it's all very complicated. And we're thinking about Vanessa, you know, his, his, his wife, um, and, and the girls that he still has that are surviving, um, you know, his daughters, we're thinking about the fact that he went to church before (laughs) he went to church, you know, and took communion before he was killed. Like, I mean, you know, we're thinking about all that type of stuff. So, it's a range of emotions and there's a lot that goes into it. But I think listening to black voices is really helpful. Uh, Bradford Davis has a couple of articles on Kobe. I thought were great. And the Gail King Snoop thing. Jamel Hill had an amazing article. Um, I think her name is Maisha Kai. She had an amazing article in the root as well, talking about uh, black women and intersection of Kobe. So there's just so many black voices that you can listen to that really help kind of parse through these things. Um, And yeah, just, some people ready to talk about it. Some people still aren't, you know, some people are still kind of working through what that looks like. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that helped anybody, but that's what I would say. No, that I, I can speak for myself. That helped me just the, the comment of that. Not every conversation is for you. That's that's hard to hear. But truth, that's you're absolutely right. Not every conversation is for me. And sometimes the best thing to do is sit back take the information that is available without trying to become involved. Yeah. Um, And I mean, I'll give another example. You take like the Obama conversation, right? Like the Obama conversation, people, there's Obama's thought of in a lot of different ways in the black community and appreciated and, you know, venerated and loved, but also in many ways um, critiqued heavily. And I've seen it, you know, we'll critique President Obama. People be like, how you going to critique me doing the best that he can do? And he was the first black this. And I'm like, y'all don't have to tell us he was the first black president. <laughs> no. He, he, there's a picture of President Obama next to Dr. King and, you know, Malcolm X and a lot of grandma's <laughs> households. We know President Obama was. We know the Obamas. We get it. But in in the group, there's a different perception of some of the decisions he made versus the outs outside of the group. Um, and so it's there's in-group, out-group conversation. There's just it's an in-group conversation. And so some of that we gonna fight it out very and it's hard because we can't, there's no private space. You know, there's always this thing we call the white gaze. There's it's always present. There's no like private space. So it's always going to be mixed company. But it I think, you know, everybody can engage the conversation. That's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But be careful about trying to like dominate and dictate the terms of a conversation because yeah. that's not your space you know gotcha caitlin did you have something you wanted to to ask i think i may have jumped over no you you're good i was i was just appreciating what tyler was saying i think like you said jonathan it's hard for white people to hear that every conversation is not for us because our default assumption is that everything is for us um and I also think what's difficult is not just even going, this conversation isn't for you, but having humility to learn and listen. And I hear from so many people, you know, on my seminary campus where we're having conversations about race and gender and politics, a lot of the time, the common refrain is like, listen, like we were talking earlier, listen to voices who are different from you. And it's really hard to not say that to people and then have them take it and go, okay, well now I'm going to be involved in every conversation instead of going, no, 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 you misunderstood what I said. Listen to people. (laughs) Don't go in and go, you know, I've arrived because I now know I should listen to other people. Now I'm, you know, woke or whatever. And I can be involved in all these conversations from an equal perspective as everyone else, instead of realizing that being involved in the conversation is a really important or listening to the conversation is a really important step before being involved in the conversation. And sometimes you'll never be involved in the conversation truly, but recognizing that there's value to you listening without contributing. And that's so hard. I mean, I'm speaking for myself here where the more that you learn and the more you're engaged, the more excited you are to, to be involved and learning um, to listen and not contribute is really, really hard. (laughs) Yeah, so that's such wise advice. I mean, it's such a good word. Um, yeah, it's it's difficult, and and I get it. It's you know, and part of this isn't just you know a, a white perspective as well, but it's also very mm-hmm. American. Like you know, we conquer stuff, we take stuff over. You know, um, man. But I just I was thinking about it recently, 
how some of the conversations that happen in black barbershops, um, the conversations that happen in barbershops will blow your mind. Um, but it stays in the barbershop. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, and I mean, a lot goes in the barbershop and there's a lot that has to be checked in the barbershop. And there's a lot that, you know, it, it shouldn't be just this free for all where anybody can say anything, of course, but people don't understand the nature of why we say what we say, how we say it. And, and that's okay. Like, but, you know, really and truly, I think I appreciate the people who are working hard to learn. I appreciate the people who have come to understandings, as you were saying, Caitlin, and realizing and now saying, I need to, you know, collect my folks and get my people and, and you know, make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm taking those risks. I respect it. Like, I think it's amazing. And I think there are different levels to those conversations, but man, it is, it is a dangerous thing to, to tell a community how they should think and feel. And for, for centuries, they've been telling us how we should feel that we shouldn't feel that we shouldn't think. And that's why the black church exists. That's why, you know, these black spaces exist for us to, to truly be ourselves, to be fully embodied um, and to be dynamic beings who can feel grief and also confusion as to how to process mm-hmm. someone's legacy. Um, and, and I think some of the things that we need sometimes what we need is prayer and support and a listening ear and, you know, a pat on the back and a hug and, and, uh, man, I just want to hear what you think. Or, you know, if you, if you don't feel comfortable sharing, that's fine. But I mean, sometimes all we need is just presence without dictating how we think and feel and, and all that good stuff. So I think that goes, that goes way further than like the quality of your opinion and your take and all that stuff. It just goes way further. That is a perfect spot to put a pin in that conversation. I think that was a great way to close that out, Tyler. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you um, for letting me talk about it. No, that's that's what that's what I hope this show and I hope for you as those of you who are listening, I hope that that's what you get from the show as we go on through the year. Um, a diverse audience, a diverse uh, panel of people talking about uh, big events that have happened and how we can process them from from different perspectives. And I hope that's what we continue to do as the year goes on. So thank you for being part of that tonight, Caitlin and, and Tyler. And um, ho- thank you for listening to us. Um before we uh, before we shove off for the night, I uh, just want to give you both a couple of seconds to pitch. What are you doing? If people have enjoyed listening to you, where can people continue to follow you? I know we kind of talked about it a little bit in uh, the beginning, uh, but let's start with you, Tyler. You host a great podcast called Pass the Mic. Um, tell us a little bit about that real quick and anywhere else you would like people to be able to keep up with you or, or follow at their own <laughs> risk. <laughs> yeah, I remembered. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> I always I always say, you know, on the podcast, you know, you can follow me on Twitter at Burns23, follow at your own risk. And um, I co-host a podcast with my good friend Jamar Tisby, who wrote a book um, called Color Compromise last year that came out last year about race in the church. And it's called Pastor Mike. It's on um, everywhere podcasts are um, listened to and downloaded. And so we talk about the intersection of uh, theology, justice, culture, politics, um, life, all the above, uh, just from a black, black centered Christian perspective. So a lot of what you heard um, in this podcast, you would get at Pastor Mike, you know, with a little bit more um, scholarly insights from Jamar um, as the historian in residence uh, over there at The Witness. So, yeah, I, I appreciate being able to, to to talk about it. But, yeah, you can, you can download Pastor Mike and. Follow me on Twitter. Absolutely. Caitlin, um, you obviously told us you have a book yeah. coming out this fall. Um, and you've, you've given us a good a good pitch on it. But uh, is there anything else? Do you do you write anywhere? I can't remember. Um, and this is how ignorant I am of the, the site I work for. Uh, do you write for Christ and Pop Culture regularly? I yes. can't remember if you're in the... Yeah, you're I in the writer's am, group. Obviously, you're in the writer's group. That was Well, a, you're a, totally a, forgiven because this last year, writing a book makes it really hard to write anything else. <laughs> So um, I did a lot less of that, but yes, I do write for Christ and Pop Culture. And I just have to say, um, people should really be listening to Pass the Mic. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And a um, couple, maybe a year ago, I started listening and it was a really significant turning point for me for doing what we talked about earlier, which is 
listening and not contributing because it's a podcast. So you literally just listen and it's a good thing. If you think it's not Mm -hmm. for you, it probably is for you. Um, If you think it's a conversation that doesn't have implications for your life, you're wrong. Um, So you should listen to Pass the Mic. Um, But yeah, yeah. thank you you for that. I'm, I'm, it's completely sincere. It's been really significant in my life. Um, so yeah, you can pay attention to Christ and pop culture to hopefully see me writing some more things this year and get on Twitter. I'm on Twitter way too much and yeah, look for the book in August. (laughs) And, uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I think I haven't tweeted in like six months. Uh, it's at alpha bovine. Uh, that's Latin for first cow. Don't ask. It's a long story. Uh, other than that, I think I have one or two articles on Christ and pop culture. They're about video games. They're very boring. Uh, not exciting. Nah, those articles are dope, man. He's a video <laughs> game. Yeah. Your video game is phenomenal. Oh, it's man. Well, thank you so much, guys. Again, I, I had a lot of fun with this. And I truly I know a lot of hosts say that at the end of the show, um, but I really did. I learned a lot from both of you. So thank you very much for agreeing to be on this first episode. So uh, we'll be back next month. I don't know uh, quite yet who our guests are going to be for that one. I have it on paper. They haven't confirmed yet, so I'm not going <laughs> to admit them on here. Uh, but <laughs> because that's like three weeks away before we record so anything can happen between now and then and who knows what's going to happen between now and the end of february Uh, we're 10 days in oh man who knows it's been crazy january who knows what's going to happen with february so for tyler for caitlin thank you so much for listening to the capc 25 for january 2020 and we will see you at the end of february thanks so much This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast, two clergy of different traditions. Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.